So this morning we're going to be looking at the second half of Ecclesiastes 7. The second half of Ecclesiastes 7. Uh, particularly uh, verses uh, 7 through 14. We're going to be looking at 7 through 14. And this is the, the latter half of the, the first uh, part of Ecclesiastes 7. We looked last week that Ecclesiastes 7 really teaches us wisdom, how we are to live in this, this life. And that's what we're going to continue to, to explore this morning. So hear the word of God in verse 7. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you can ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So as I said, this is intended to, to make us wise, and this is intended by uh, Solomon to, to really teach us how to live in this, this world, how to live in God's world, and how we can have a better life under the sun, under the, the fall. Instead of chasing worldly philosophies, worldly pleasures, and, and passions, and all these various pursuits that Solomon has looked at and that we've looked at with Solomon, we're exhorted by Solomon to live in a way that is quite unnatural to the fallen man. It's unnatural because of the fall and because we, are, we pursue the things that are temporal, are, are fleeting, instead of that which is eternal. And we've already seen Solomon compare men with beasts, and that was quite a, a shocking passage when we went through it, but he didn't compare men with beasts ontologically, that means in the way that they were made, but by the way that men act. Men act more like beasts than they act like God, who is the creator. We are made in God's image, but we act more like beasts of the field. And men devour one another and think very little of others. And we often do what's in our own best interest without really considering the interest of others. You know, What does my action do to the person next to me? What does my action do to, to my neighbor? We often don't consider that. So we act in our best interests. But here Solomon is teaching us and reminding us that we are to live better than that. We are to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and in a way that really honors and glorifies him, that makes much of, of him and very little of us. So last week we looked at the, the first six verses, 
And in those six verses, Solomon told us that we are to desire a good name or a good reputation more than the wealth of the world. We are told that it is better to have sorrow than laughter because sorrow, though bitter, makes the sweet so much sweeter. We're taught that it is better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting because in the house of mourning we are reminded of our mortality, of our frailty, and it often sets our priorities in order. We often start thinking of what is eternal. And to remind you of the words of Charles Bridges, he said, if anything will set the thoughtless to think, this will be it, being in the house of mourning, being confronted with the present reality of death, that we will die. Instead of attending the house of, of feasting where you think very little of eternity, the wise man dwells in the house of mourning. His mortality is always set before him, not in a, a morbid way, but in a, in a way that reminds him that the things of this earth is fleeting, is transient. And it continually points to him what is eternal. And we also looked at our desire to do anything that that shuns that out of, out of, our, out of our minds, that we, we don't want to think of the reality of life, that we will die, and that there is something more past this earthly life, whether it be entertainment or these pursuits that Solomon has been talking about, anything that we can pursue under this sun, under the fall, to rid ourselves of the thought that we will die, we will do. And finally, Solomon warned us that we're not to be a fool when we're rebuked by a wise man. We are to receive a rebuke as the wounds of a loving friend. Instead of being proud and arrogant and haughty and wanting to sit in the company of fools, he says it is better to receive a rebuke from a friend. And this morning we're going to pick back up in our text continuing looking at Solomon's way of, of better living under the sun, starting right there in verse 7. So let's look at verse 7. In verse 7, Solomon says, For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. All right, so here Solomon discusses again this theme of, of oppression and the wickedness of it. And we've already seen him talk about the wickedness of, of oppression. He says that those who oppress others for their own gain makes a wise man mad. That means the wise man is no longer wise, is he? He becomes mad. And not angry, he becomes crazy, he becomes insane. He can no longer think rightly of his life or of the people around him, or especially if he is a king of his kingdom. If he has forsaken wisdom, and have gone off into folly. And this is something that, that we've really looked at before. Oppression, like all sins, fall back on the one who's committing it. It's, it's as if the psalmist, as the psalmist says, the wicked dig a pit and then fall in it. So to the oppressor, when he begins to 
act as a tyrant, will often fall back into it. He will fall on his own sword. And here it says that oppressors flee from wisdom and fall into foolishness, fall into insanity. That is to say, his selfishness begets his madness, and that, that evil falls back upon him. And oppression really destroys the heart of man. It blots out all of his moral principles. It destroys his integrity. It often renders him callous and unable to, to understand or to care for the suffering of others. And he becomes deaf to the cries of justice. This is what an oppressor does. This is who he becomes. He abandons wisdom for folly. He abandons reason for madness. Being, becoming so powerful and tyrannical really leaves a man to think that he is invincible, that he has no downfall. And that, that really is the, the testimony of, of history. You look at all the, the great kings of old, the great empires, the Roman Empire, uh, all, these, all these countries that never thought that they would never have a major footprint upon the earth, many of them decimated. Kings who have set themselves up to be tyrants and authoritarian fall by the wayside and are only remembered for their wickedness, not for their any good deeds that they may have done. A person like this thinks very little of eternity, and, for, and he really lives for the pleasures of this world. What can I do to increase my joy? This really is hedonism. You know, we looked at that probably a few months ago now, uh, hedonism is just doing whatever you can for your own pleasure. It doesn't matter if it's at the expense of others. You live for your own pleasure. And this is what an oppressor does. He lives for his own pleasure. And this, again, this is something that we've looked at before, that oppressors are those who have power over others. They become oppressors by living unto a law of themselves that they don't seek divine counsel, they don't seek divine law, they become law. And when that happens, justice is destroyed. Justice is not in their heart, nor is righteousness. Because of this, the oppressor delights in doing his own will and chasing his own pleasures. So he seeks to do what he wants to do. He has no fear of God before him. And in our text, Solomon says that, that this is a, a corrupt way of living, that this is really insanity to live this way because it will only lead to destruction. Solomon also says that a bribe corrupts the heart, and this, is, this links back to what he, he just said, that oppression makes a wise man mad, a bribe corrupts the heart. The oppressor who may have been wise at one time and becomes mad is not bothered by the wickedness of, a, of taking a bribe. He's completely comfortable in taking a bribe because he has abandoned wisdom for madness. He does his own will. He, he cares about himself. A man like this who becomes an oppressor doesn't care about justice or righteousness. 
He cares about getting his. So there, there is no promotion of, of goodness or of, of keeping the law, but rather to do his own pleasures. Though at one time he may be wise, he has become a fool or he has become insane. Justice is perverted. Unrighteousness is promoted in order to gain wealth, power, influence, prestige. And this always comes at the expense of those that he will put down, that he would rather have those things than justice and, and righteousness. This really is sin begetting sin. This is sin stacking upon sin. Well, let me ask you this. Is it, is it likely for a man who, who becomes a tyrant and mad is it likely for him to take a one-time bribe and then never decide to take another? No. He's going to take another bribe, isn't he? Because that's what's in his heart. He, he has shown his heart that he cares about his own passions, his own pleasures. So it's not likely that he will just take a bribe this one time and then he will be a just and wise ruler next time. Well, if he's not caught if his receiving of a bribe is not known to others, he's going to take more, isn't he? He's going to continue to sin and continue to be corrupt. And we see this all the time in, in, our, own, in our own country, that when these scandals come out, it's not just, oh, this one time this senator such and such took a, a one-time bribe in order to get to where he is, and then he was righteous in any other uh, occasions. No. We always read, oh, he took this bribe. Oh, here's 40 other people saying that, that uh, bribed him. And it becomes a, a vicious scandal. Uh, so a person who gets away with the first bribe will often take another and another and another. He will increase in wickedness. He will continue to sin, and sin begets sin. He will continue to go down the, the road of sin and really become more wicked because his heart is hardening toward what is just and what is righteous. And that's, that's something that we need to think of. If, if we are in places of authority, whether that's in the state or in the church or in our own homes, we need to be on guard of being an oppressor. We need to do what is just and what is righteous. We need to look at what God says is just, what God says is righteous, and enforce that within our own families, within our own churches, within the state, even within our businesses. If we have businesses, we need to do what is just and what is righteous. We don't need to be an insane ruler. We need to be a just governor of what God has given us. Those who possess influence and power over others need to be on guard of this. So be on guard of becoming a tyrant and oppressing people. But Solomon continues in verse 8 by saying, The end of the matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. All right, now this verse relates back to this previous verse, this one I just talked about uh, of, on the oppressor. The one who looks at only the present benefits of life instead of what is eternal. Now J. Adams remarks, quote, 
He means that a person is a fool to look only to the present benefits of his corrupt actions and forgets to think about how things will turn out in the end. This is, this is the way the madman thinks. All that is important is the present. He ignores consequences. So this man who acts like this lives for the present. He lives in his own reality. He thinks very little about the consequences. And we've seen a good king do that, haven't we, in Scripture. You know of a good king who acts rashly and then is later found out by a prophet? David? David was a good king, wasn't he? And yet he thought very little about the future and what his actions would bring upon him. Rather, he indulged in his present lusts. And he thought very little about that. So in a way, there he was acting like a madman. Now, thankfully, he was rebuked. And like a wise man, he saw that as a wound from a friend, and he took the rebuke. He repented. But as we've seen in Ecclesiastes, Solomon deals with this idea of unrighteousness, being in the places where there should be righteousness, and injustice being in the places where there should be justice. And where we saw that, Solomon concluded that while an, an oppressor may escape punishment in this life, he may be an oppressor all of his life. He may be tyrannical until the day he dies. And then we have this tendency to think, oh, he got away with it. No. We've already seen Solomon take great comfort that that oppressor, that tyrant, will stand before the judge of all the earth. He will give an account for his wickedness, for his tyranny, that he will not escape justice, that he will have justice done upon him. The judge is the righteous one that cannot be bribed like the wicked judge, like the wicked ruler. The true judge of the earth cannot be bribed. He cannot be tempted to overlook iniquity. And when that oppressor, when that wicked ruler stands before God, all will be laid bare. All will be ever-present before him. Now this the second part of verse 8 compares patience with pride. And there, there is such a link to all these. That, that the man, the, remember the wise man, or the wise ruler does what is good, the, the wicked ruler does what is, what is evil, you know, he takes bribes and stuff, and then he moves on to being patient and comparing it with pride. Well, obviously, the one who has become an oppressor has become proud, right? So Solomon wants to correct this. He wants to look back at, okay, what's the antidote to pride? One is patience, to be patient. These two, like, like wisdom and madness, are mutually exclusive. That you really can't be puffed up with pride and be patient. Those two things don't go together. Those aren't two, the same fruit from the same tree, or different fruits from the same tree. You can't have that. These two don't live in the same garden. Now, Charles Bridges again points out that Pride is the source of impatience 
as humility is the principle of gentleness and endurance. So pride is the source of impatience. Why are you impatient? Because you, there's a pride issue there. What about gentleness? If you're, if you're gentle, if, if you have endurance, then that's a principle of humility. Then you are marked by humility. By patience, we rely upon God, don't we? We rely upon his providence. We rely upon him to, to meet our needs. And it is by patience that we can avoid many sins. Just be patient. I don't know how many times I have to say that a day in my household. Just be patient. And then probably five minutes later, I feel like God's telling me, just be patient. But by patience, we can avoid many, many sins. When Solomon says that we need to be patient of spirit, that phrase of spirit really means a disposition, that you have a spirit of patience. Now, that's weighty. I cannot say that I have a, a very strong disposition or spirit of patience. But we need to be people of patience. Patience is who we are, to some extent, more or less, to a greater degree or to a lesser degree, we are marked by patience of spirit. Again, to quote Charles Bridges, patience is the child of faith. Patience is committing the case to God and doing his present will. You get that? Patience is the child of faith. Saying if you have faith, patience is its child, that you will have patience. So we really need to be people of, of patience, people who rest in God's providence in every situation. This is, of course, an opposition to being haughty of spirit, mentioned here by Solomon, or really being prideful. Being proud of spirit is to believe that you are better than others, or believe that God somehow or in some way owes you something that you don't have, or thinking that you deserve more from from others because of your earthly achievements. It is really to be arrogant or to believe yourself superior to others. But we really aren't owed anything in this life. What are we owed, truthfully? If God were to give us what we are owed, or our wages, it would be sin and death. Our wages of sin is death. We are owed nothing in this life. Everything comes by way of God's providence, and in that we are to be patient. Now, as inheritors, when we are adopted, we are owed something, not because we have earned it, but because it is freely given. You know, we looked at First uh, Peter a few weeks ago uh, when I preached that sermon, that those who are called by God, those who are adopted in his family, are owed an inheritance, which is eternal life. That is something that is given from a father to a son. So he will freely give us eternal life. But as far as earthly things, we're not owed anything, especially when we are proud. Uh, in verse 9, Solomon says, Do not fear in your heart to be angry. For anger resides in the bosom of fools. Now, there's another great lesson to be learned here. 
We are not to be eager to be angry. This one's a tough one too, isn't it? Being angry. Now there are a few things to note here, because it's not as black and white as, as it may first appear. What, what's really being taught here? First, we're not to be hasty to be offended. We're not to be hastily offended. That is, we need to be charitable towards others. We need to have a spirit of charity, of not thinking the, the worst of others, as if others are trying to offend us. And maybe they do offend us. Maybe we are offended. But we need to be charitable. We need to talk to them instead of biting back in anger. So some questions that we must ask. Do they really mean to offend us? Did they really mean it in the way that we took it? Now that one's a, a key one. I've dealt with that a million times where someone will offend me and it's just that I've, I've taken it completely wrong. You know, it's not what they meant, but it's what I heard, right? And then I get hastily offended. And as soon as I get hastily offended, then the other party gets hastily offended and then we're having intense fellowship. <laughs> That's what happens. So that is a question to ask about is there, is there any truth in what is said? When someone says something, we can be offended, but we need to ask ourselves, is there any truth in this? That, that's really looking at your life and trying, especially if you hear it from more than one person. This is being introspective, looking at yourself and really discerning your own heart and trying to find, is this something that is a descriptor of me. But we can be offended of, of be angry in that. Uh, we've got to ask ourselves, is this a wound of a friend meant to correct us? If this is a rebuke, the wise man takes a rebuke. If, the, if this is true, then we need to take correction. We don't need to be angry about it. But that, that's incredibly hard because when someone confronts us with a possible sin or, or anything in our lives, we tend to be like, how dare you? You know, it's, we get angry almost immediately. And that really is a symptom of, of, of pride and of, of this hostility. Second, we ought not go looking to be offended. Now, this one is vitally important. This type of attitude is prevalent among young Christians today, and I see this all the time, especially on the internet, going out and looking for reasons to be offended and then attacking that person until you feel justified in your attacks. Many young Christians have built social media platforms on being offended. And that's, that's the truth of the matter. It should, should not be so or they have built their platform strictly on the basis of poking it at others with whom they disagree. And I'm not talking about really heretical things. I'm talking about things that there is matter of, of difference in under, under the umbrella of orthodoxy. That we create these things, we poke and we prod at people, and, and we go out and we try to find them. They just appear on our doorstep looking for it just to attack. And we should not be that way. 
just as you are not to be an injustice collector, you ought not be an injustice seeker. You're not to go looking for people who are acting in a way that you deem unfit. And this is really prevalent, not just among Christians, but in all of our media. What, what happens if you turn on the news? One news outlet that favors a particular political party will write a report in such a way against the other political party that the one who supports the former political party is angry, right? And, and they have an incense uh, matter of justice about them. They want justice. They want justice. And we see this all the time. And then the other side will do it to the other side. And then you have mad people on both sides, and all, we, all we're doing is just being angry, and we're being hasteful in that anger. But we ought not seek for reasons to be angry. Third, we need to be incredibly careful when we hear of something that should make us angry. We need to be careful when we hear things that should make us angry. That, that means we have a, a righteous anger, a true anger. We need to be careful to make sure that that's true before we get angry. Hateful and anger. We must ask, do we know all the facts? Or are we rushing to judgment? We need to know what was said and what was done. And that basically never happens now. You know, the outrage always comes after the court case, doesn't it? No. It's before the court case. Immediately, as soon as an accusation is made, cancel, kill, right? That's what we do. Instead of finding out the truth, we're hastily getting angry. Proverbs 18.17 tells us, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So do we tear down before we know all the facts? Do we take time to listen to the full story before we condemn those with whom we suspect have committed a, a grievous error? When an accusation is made, we need to be careful how we respond. We don't need to respond in haste. We need to be wise. We need to listen to what's being said or what's being uh, accused, and then hear the story of, of uh, hear the testimony of the the accused, and he needs to stand before his accuser. We need to know these things before condemning such people. You would want that same charity if you had to stand before a judge. If an accusation was made against you, you don't want to receive uh, anger, and you be innocent, do you? No, you want. You want it to be fair. You want to stand before your accuser. So we really need to be careful not to condemn before we have the, the facts. Now, there is a distinction to be made here between anger that is done in haste and righteous anger. There are times of, uh, of righteous anger. There are occasions in which we ought to be angry. When the Lord is blasphemed, we ought to be angry. When someone harms or attempts to harm our family, we ought to be angry. When men teach false doctrines to others or promotes false doctrines in a church, we ought to be angry. We should be angry because we love truth. Right? There are things that we should be angry about. We should have 
righteous anger, but Solomon warns us against being hasty in anger. How can we know if our anger is righteous if, if we've not heard the case? We can't. We must be patient, and we must hear before we be angry. We need to make sure our anger is a righteous anger and not a foolish anger. In order to do so, we cannot be hasty in our anger. We must listen. Moving on to verse 10, Solomon says, Do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Now this one is incredibly important. This one, everyone does. Every single person does this. And it's so incredibly important to meditate upon this text. How many of you have gone through a, a very troubling time in life and you said to yourself, I wish things were like they were before? All of us, right? Or if we've, if we've lost a loved one, oh, I wish I could just go back and live in that, that day, you know, those days with that, that loved one. I've done this, and I know we all have. Living in the past is something that we've all done. We look at times gone by as the golden years, don't we? We think, oh, that was the, that was the sweetest point of life, that moment. Everything was fine that moment. We do this in our own lives, and we do this in the life of our nation. I mean, we can remember times in, in our lives where everything felt right, everything felt in place. In our nation, we've seen drastic changes, even over the past 10 years, that we never would have expected to see. Drastic changes, and not for the good, all for the worst. These things have somewhat taken us by surprise, especially the church. I don't think, I think if you had gone back 20 years ago, no one would have said that we would be fighting the things that we're fighting today. And we can often think in the life of, of our nation, man, you remember how good the, the 50s were? You remember how good the 40s were? I wish I could live in Mayberry, right? That's the place to be. That, that was the golden years, right? However, Solomon's counsel here is not to dwell on those times, not to dwell in the past. People who dwell in the past are really looking through ro rose-tinted glasses. They forget that there were issues in the past and that there were different fights in the past, not the same fights that we have now, but they were different, but they were there. That each generation has its own troubles. We forget about the hardships that, that we faced then in a lot of our new ones. We think, oh, this, this new present reality is so painful. I wish I could go back then. But back then had its own trouble too. We tend to think that only of the good times, and we want to revisit those times. And that really is being nostalgic of the past. But you know what nostalgia really does? It distorts the past. That we think of only the good times and not the bad times. We think, oh, things were so much better then. I wish I could go back then. But back then, 
may have not been any easier than it is now. We just do it in a lot of our own present struggles. And what actual value is it to dwell upon the past as if it were some golden time? What benefit is there for you to do that? It is gone. It will never occur again. And our present day is a, a felt reality. We feel it. We feel how difficult this life can be presently. And when we're under pressure we, and we see things changing so drastically around us, it's easy and it's very tempting to dwell in the better days. But I want to remind you that God has placed you in the time that you're in. You're no longer in those golden years, so to speak, which really weren't golden. God has placed you exactly where he wants you in history. And it wasn't by accident. It was purposeful. He has placed you here purposefully. And we do not get to decide when we're born or when we die. And we saw that uh, in earlier chapters of Ecclesiastes. It says there is a time to be born and there is a time to die. Okay, well, who gets to decide the time to be born or the time to die? It's not us. It's God. So we don't get to decide when we live. We don't get to decide the battles that we will face. As a church, we don't get to say, oh, I'd rather go back and face that other heresy. That other heresy was so much easier. Well, it wasn't so easy back then because we were doing the same things. We were trying to understand what was being said and, and laboring so tirelessly to, to figure out what's being said and how to answer. Of course, it's easier now because we've spent all this time preparing. So it, it doesn't really help us, does it? We don't get to decide the battles which we face, either in our church, in our own lives, in our nation. What we can decide is how we will react to those present struggles in our lives. How will I act right now in this time which God has placed me in? What am I to do now? Not what's been done before. What will I do now? Now, I'm thinking of two things here. First is the battles that we face in our own lives and the struggles that we have, whether it's sickness or loss of family, we can often dwell on the past when we had better health, when our knees didn't hurt in the mornings, right? Like I remember 20 years ago, my knees didn't hurt when I woke up. I wish I could have those knees. Well, can't. God has given you the knees you have. So we can dwell on the past instead of recognizing and living in the present reality of life. And we need to live in the present reality of life. And the second thing I'm thinking of, slightly mentioned it, really is the battles in which we face religiously. And this one's incredibly important. The battles that we face for the gospel, for the sanctity of, of human life and marriage, for biblical creation, and all other battles are our battles to fight. We don't get to choose which battles we fight. We have to choose, will we fight? Yes, we must fight because we love truth. We don't get to decide what we fight. But these are our battles, and we must fight for the faith. You know, we, th we tend to think about church history as being something in the past. We are church history. The men and women that you read about will be us one day. I mean, I'm not saying I'll be recorded in a church history book, but our generation will. What, how did we fight? 
how did we defend the faith now? And we don't like the battles. No one likes the battles. But we must fight because we love the king. Well, quickly looking at verses 11, 12, 13, and 14, we'll see how this goes. Uh, Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. So Solomon here, again, talks about wisdom. And this has been one of his uh, themes throughout the book. And we've seen him talk about it over and over again. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. But Solomon exhorts us that wisdom is good. We know that, right? We know wisdom is a, a good thing when sought for the right reasons, right? When sought to, to be pleasing to the Lord, not for our own ends. Wisdom comes from the Lord. So to say to live wisely really is to say to live as the Lord has commanded you. Think, think about that. If wisdom is from the Lord and we are to be a wise people, that means that we are to live according to how God has commanded us to live. Any other way is foolish, that we are to live according to God's uh, revealed will. Solomon says that having wisdom along with an inheritance is a good thing, and that wisdom protects the man from folly and from madness and wasting his life on the fleeting pleasures of this world. Wisdom is a good thing, a thing that we must pursue, not for the sake of wisdom itself again, but to please the Lord and to have a better life here. And he links wisdom with inheritance here because both are good. Things Solomon talk about both being bad, right? Well, it's bad because they're sought for their own ends, not for glorifying God. But both are good. It's, it's perfectly fine to, to be wealthy, and it's perfectly preferred to be wise instead of a fool. But here the link is that the, the wise will not squander his inheritance, but he will use it wisely. He will be wise with his money. The inheritance received by the fool will be used foolishly, but the wise man will use it wisely. I'm especially interested, though, in the the latter part of verse 12. What does Solomon mean when he says the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor? I think it's important to remember that wisdom isn't something that's just floating out in space, right? It's, It's not something that's outside of God. It is from God. God is wise. And if we are to be wise, we need to listen to God. So it's not something that's just out there, some nebulous existing uh, wisdom. So it's nothing like that. But I think, I think here there's a twofold sense. The first is that wisdom protects, protects us because we make wise choices, because we don't act as a fool, right? That's the general reading of the of the text, to to act wise is to do what is smart, and therefore, generally, you will live longer on the earth because you're not acting as a fool. So there's there's really that sense that the, the wise man in general will prolong his days upon the earth because he makes wise choices. It doesn't mean things will be easy or that you won't have pains in this life, but you will avoid many trials and hardships. So, in a general sense, being wise means that it will go reasonably well for you on on earth. So, you need to be wise. But there is, in another sense, that Charles Bridges brought out. He said, there is only one wisdom that makes us wise unto life. 
Now listen to what he says. Natural wisdom, the world's idol, leaves us blind and dead. Here is the life revealed, proposed, possessed, and secured. Now what is that wisdom he's talking about? The wisdom of Christ, the gospel, that this is a, a different type of, of wisdom than wisdom in general that actually does lead to life and does lead to eternal, you know, eternal life. So wisdom, according to Bridges, is knowing that the, Son is, that the Son of God has come and has given understanding that, that we know him to be true and that we are in him and that even in his Son, Jesus Christ, that is the true wisdom that preserves life. So I think there is a, a double meaning there that in the sense we do have a general protection by being wise, that we just don't make foolish mistakes. But to, be, to, to know the wisdom of eternal life, the, the, the wisdom that comes from Christ, is to possess life forever. And that is something that we should seek. But this is not something that can be learned on our own. It must be revealed to us. Um, and just very quickly, in uh, one minute, one minute. Um, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So this is really the conclusion here of this first part of, of uh, chapter 7. He's exhorting us to remember that God is sovereign, that the things that happen to us in this life are part of God's eternal decree, and it is his work. And we all have crooks in our own lot, don't we? But, and there are many things that we can't fix on our own, but um, we need to be patient in his providence and in, in his counsel. We don't have time for questions. If there are any questions, write them down, and we'll deal with it next Sunday. All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for giving us this time in your word. We pray now that you will uh, prepare our hearts for worship to, to hear your word. Uh, let us be attentive and let us store up the, the riches of your word and the, the, the treasures of heaven. We ask in Christ's name.